Hello and welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy and I'll be your host. On today's episode, you'll hear from myself, Andy Steiger, Wes Huff, and Steve Kim. And today we are seeking, exploring, discussing the question of, can I lose my salvation? I know, it's a doozy. And because of that, this is part one. Make sure you tune in for next week's episode as we get into part two. But before we get into the episode, I just got a few announcements that are coming up on the AC Radar. On September 16th, Apologetics Canada will be hitting the road to Kelowna, BC. We will be holding an event called Identity Crisis, establishing who we are and what we exist for. This event is in partnership with a local church called Praxis. This will be an evening of live music, thought-provoking dialogue, and an opportunity to work through one of the most controversial topics in our current cultural climate. Who am I and what am I here for? To RSVP, feel free to head to apologeticscanada.com slash identity. Hope to see you there. AC is excited to announce our next upcoming AC Literary Expedition. This time, we're going to be talking about doctor-assisted suicide and Canada's crisis of conscience. Freedom of conscience. It sounds like an abstract concept, but Canadians have recently been confronted with its growing importance. From government mandates to the right to protest and civil disobedience, people are realizing why it's important to protect this fundamental freedom guaranteed by the Canadian Charter. So join us on September 25th from 4 to 6 p.m. online. Hear from two doctors about what is at stake, not only for them, but for all Canadians. So again, join us on Sunday, September 25th for a time of learning, discussion, and asking questions. You can find more details on our website. Last but not least, AC is excited to announce our second Leadership Summit happening this October from the 28th to the 30th. The Leadership Summit seeks to bring together aspiring Christian leaders from across the West Coast for an incredible weekend to empower, equip, and engage. This is an opportunity for young professionals aged 19 to 30 to meet one another and grow together as Christian leaders. We will be speaking and sharing on a range of topics in the realm of Christian leadership. So for more information or to sign up, please head over to apologeticscanada.com slash leadership summit. Spots are limited, so make sure you sign up today. All right, that's all from me. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the AC Podcast. Uh, my name is Troy. And I'm here today with Andy, Steve, and Wes. And we're going to dive right into today's topic because it's a, it's a, it's a good one. And I think that we, need, we deserve to give ourselves the time. So welcome to the episode, gentlemen. Thank you, Troy. It's good to be here. Troy and I were driving the other day. In fact, we were finishing filming uh, the branded teaching sessions, which uh, which was was painful, but but joyous all at the same time. <laughs> this is very true. This is very true. Standing for hours on end, trying to maintain coherent thought as we uh, do the teaching <laughs> videos is definitely something I never uh, could have imagined would be so challenging. But it was fun. You were you were baptized by fire into making 1, videos. But I bring that up because on the drive there, I was talking to Troy and I said, you know what, Troy, I think that we need to talk about the subject of assurance of salvation. You know, can you lose your salvation on the podcast? It's a a topic that we've never addressed. And I feel like that that we should address. So we so we sent out an email to everybody and said, hey, we're going to address this topic. You know, can you lose your salvation? It was funny. Your response, Steve. Because Wes was like, yeah, let's do it. But Steve's like, guys, like, 
I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> I'm not even sure where I land on that. I, I've been I've been stewing yeah. on this one for years, and we've never addressed it on the podcast because my yeah. sentiment is actually very similar to Steve. Like, I'm still unsettled. And one of the things actually that excites me about talking about this is <laughs> we we very well might disagree uh, on this topic, <laughs> and so I'm kind of looking forward to taking the gloves off and just just going at each other a little bit here. Not kidding. <laughs> yeah, it, it will was... be fun though to talk it through. I'm very much in the, that same situation. And it's funny because it's one of those things that I think has become a topic in the church that, quite honestly, for this reason, people are afraid to to touch on. Or they'll just blurt out an absolute feeling like, of course not. I'm like, oh, well, let's let's get into why. And that's what people are like, well, I mean, well, I don't really want to go into it or not. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It- like Andy said, this was something that I'm not really 100% settled on. Um, in fact, I, I'm, I'm not really 100% settled on many things. But this one, I kind of, you know, it depends on the day. Some days I'm just like, oh, yeah, like eternal security, perseverance of the saints, all that kind of stuff. Other days I, I wake up and I go, you know, uh, I, I think apostasy is possible. Falling away from the faith, that is possible kind of thing. And so there, I, I am excited to talk about this because I think for me, it'll be also like a learning experience as we all kind yeah. of bring this to the table. And quite honestly, I mean, we've never talked about this really on the podcast, but we also haven't really talked about it sort of, you know, off screen, so to speak, right? I don't ever remember really talking about this in any depth with you, Andy, for example, for as long as I've worked with you. And so... I'm kind of excited about this. Well, and as the one person who <laughs> feels like they are confident in, in this topic, um, let me just preface it by saying that I wrestled with the question for years. And even uh, my wife, Melissa, will tell you, you know, when we were dating, we had these conversations where we go back and forth when um, she lived in Barrie, which was just about an hour, hour north of Toronto. And I was going to school at, at York University in Toronto. And so well, I'd drive back and forth you know, on the weekends and stuff, going up to see her or um, coming down back to Toronto or whatever. And we'd have these conversations. And uh, there were lots of conversations where I would bring this stuff up and uh, realize that was a mistake because we'd be going back and forth and she'd be like, well, what about the people? And she was totally right. What about the people? And, um, and so, you know, it was a wrestling process for me for a long, long time. And I really started to uh, delve into some of the more theological questions about, you know, salvation, justification, sanctification, and and where I sat in, you know, this 2000 years of church history, because obviously, we're not the first people to talk about the subject. Mm -hmm. And you know, Wes, this is a good point that we need to just start with before we get into this uh, huge topic. And that is, you know, please, you know, dialogue with us on this, but but be gracious with us in this. We're 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 burying our souls to you as we right. are, you know, sharing with you how we are currently wrestling through this question. Uh, one of the things I love about the podcast is we do hear from you, listeners. Uh, you know, sometimes we say things that just need to be challenged, and so challenge us. You know, that we we do not see ourselves above being challenged or questioned. Uh, and, and so if we didn't, if we don't address something, you know, or we've missed an angle, listen, we, we'd love to hear from you, but, uh, this is a moment where we're opening up the, the, the soul of, 
yeah, you know, our our thinking on this question and letting you letting you peer in sort of ideas as we work through uh, our thoughts on can you lose your salvation? Now, for me, guys, uh, I've pastored for 20 years, as you guys know, and I'll never forget one girl in particular who wrestled with this question to the point of tears. And and for her, it was kind of a mixture of a fear of eternity. You know, per, you know, it's kind of like it wasn't necessarily like a fear of hell. It was a fear of existing forever. And, you know, let's just say, okay, fear of like existing without God forever sort of idea. And whether or not she had assurance of her salvation, you know, so that she didn't have these fears. And I think people have various fears. Maybe it's that fear of eternity. Maybe it's a fear of hell or whatever it might be. And so it's kind of like, it's one of those questions that, like you were saying, Steve, it'll like creep up on you. One day you got this one locked down, you know, it's in a, it's submitted in a headlock and the next day it's got you in a headlock. And, and that's what it was like with this girl as she would come to church at, at times, again, just in tears and just needing to walk with her through this. So as you're listening today, I fully recognize that, that maybe, maybe today you've got this issue settled, or maybe you feel like this issue's got you settled, uh, and so I, I hope that this, at the end of the day, though, um, helps you to think through it more clearly. We probably should be wrestling through these things with tears more often than we probably do. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so um, I, I think maybe we can jump into it, but I think maybe the first thing we should do as we do that is maybe define what it is that we're talking about. So I already kind of threw out some terms here, like, you know, eternal security, perseverance of the saints, and the assurance of salvation, they're kind of, um, they're all related, but they're not exactly identical. And I think, Wes, out of all of us, <laughs> this is sort of in your camp, so to speak. You know, this is not a tribal yeah, thing. What do you mean, but... you people? <laughs> You're not going to win that everything. one here, man. You are not going to win that one. <laughs> so, Wes... Um, why don't you tell us what do we mean by eternal security, perseverance of the saints, and assurance of salvation? Yeah, there's a couple terms. Um, to tell you the truth, I'm not the biggest fan of most of them. Uh, I'm personally not a fan of the phrase "once saved, always saved." I think it tends to be misleading and and probably communicates more confusion than it does clarity. I, I'm also actually. Uh, not a fan of the term perseverance of the saints. I like the term preservation of the saints better yeah, than perseverance. Be- because I think what the term perseverance of the saints does is it puts the emphasis on the person, that the person perseveres. And th- there's definitely truth in that, that, you know, the one who perseveres to the end will be will be the one who is um, triumphant. But I think if we talk about preservation, what that puts the emphasis on is God. Now, God is the one who is the sole arbiter of salvation and the sole arbiter of the one who can keep the the individual, um, the the saved person, the one who's born again, the regenerate elect, uh, in in keeping um, to persevere uh, on the basis of of God's free agent and and active will, not on. On humanity. So ultimately, what it comes down to is it's the question of can a born again believer, can someone who has experienced the saving work of Jesus Christ, then leave that or not? 
Is that something that um, is is assured that salvation, that the atoning work of Christ is a is a is a seal uh, upon the believer that we cannot uh, you know depart from, or is this something that we, through our own volition and will, can actually move away? Now, let, let's uh, just just for clarity, because I know some listeners might not appreciate that there's uh, some distinctions going on here amongst us. Uh, Wes leans more Calvinist slash full Calvinist slash pledges allegiance to Calvin. No, it's kidding. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm about as reformed as you can get, you know, serve it on a piece of toast with bacon and cheese and I'm good to go. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I, I don't know, I don't know about Troy as much, but I know for Steve and I, we lean more toward the Arminian camp, Wesleyan Arminian camp kind of thing. Although anybody who spent time around me knows that the only person that I pledge allegiance to is Christ. So Christian's the only label you ever hear me uh, take on. Uh, where, where I like, so I, I I'm not I'm not Calvinist, uh, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I'm Arminian either. Uh, Would, like I've yeah. I've heard you and and Steve <clears throat> talk about Molinism. Would you say that? Yeah, I I probably lean more in that direction than Andy does. Because I find Molinism interesting. To a Calvinist <laughs> than it is not. Yeah, it it depends. Yeah. It, Molinism that's a whole another discussion. But um, basically, Molinism has what I find appealing about that is that it can go either way. Like I, I've seen, for example, a philosopher yep. like Alvin Plantinga, he would call himself a Molinist Calvinist, and then others like. Um, William Lane Craig, he's he's a Molinist, but he's also Wesleyan, right? So he kind of he affirms a libertarian free will, the idea that we can um, um, choose things like in, in a libertarian sense, right? The source of that choice is us, you know, that sort of thing. And so, all that to say, if that sounds really convoluted, it <laughs> depends on how you see it. It can go either way, or it pulls both together that, that's why i got off the molinist train is because i realized depending upon who i i was in front of that was defining molinism it could go either way uh between like a strong mm -hmm. form of molinism that would be like the plantinga route versus a, a weaker form uh now if people mm -hmm. are wondering what are we talking about here we're talking about god's foreknowledge we're talking about uh specifically let me just break it down really simply what we're talking about on the one hand with calvinism and correct me if you don't like this Wes. That, but God is choosing uh, the elect versus leaning towards the Arminian camp. The, the person is, is choosing God. Or we could say somewhere in the middle, both are happening, that God is both choosing people and people are choosing God. And, and dependent upon, you can, you can appreciate there's a gradient there and people tend to land in different degrees of that gradient versus God's choosing work versus people's choosing work. Yeah, right. essentially the 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 terms that are used, the theological terms, are synergism and monergism. Synergism being that you know there's a there's an interplay between the salvific work of humanity synergistically working for the process of salvation in choosing God with God. And then monergism is that it's only an effectual work of God solely and that humanity contributes nothing but their sin. You know, it's really interesting that with, with all these, 
with all the terms and phrasing, like I, I maybe I don't know if you guys can relate, but like when I was in Bible college, this was one aspect of Bible college that would just make my skin boil because <laughs> I like very very being very honest like I didn't didn't grow up with all the phrasing and things like that like my my dad being a pastor he the most I probably would have heard being mostly used was Calvinism versus Armenian and so I remember going to Bible college and just man literally watching friendships torn apart because Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. holding their camp and you know it would go from the classroom to the hallway to the lunchroom to the you know to the rec room and and I remember just like, man, forget it. I'm not claiming any of them. I remember people have been asking me, what side are you on? And I'm like, I'm on God's <laughs> side. And he was like this, <laughs> you know, I, I say that jokingly, but that that was really where I landed. But I, I, if I'm being, you know, as time has kind of gone on, I've I've found like I fall, I fall somewhat in the middle where my understanding, you know, is this or at least what, from what I've just experienced is like I feel as though God makes himself known. He, 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 yeah. there's this invitation to salvation. There's this invitation to live for him, to, to have a relationship with him. But as I've looked at the way, and, and maybe this is something we would get into is, is trying to differentiate between losing your faith and losing your salvation, or if there's a difference, because I, I find that when I look at it from that angle, then I'm like, okay, but it takes faith for me to want to say yes Mm-hmm. You know, that that's such a good point. And I think what this really highlights is, because I mean, when you talk to Calvinists, Arminians, or Molinists, or whatever, right, they're not dumb, right? They're not just pulling stuff out of thin air. It's probably because when you read through scripture, because all sides, at least they claim to be scripturally grounded, Right, and I think they all are. Um, so it's probably because as you read through the scripture, there are passages that point in either direction. Now the question is, how do we pull them all together? And I think that's where really we kind of maybe depart in some ways. We disagree on how we pull these together. Well, and I think you fact, could say, Steve, that we agree to disagree. That you could right. call this the theological playground or an open-handed issue. That we uh, we just have grace for each other. I don't I don't know what's right. I, I'm going to make a choice, but I'm open. I think, unfortunately, a lot of the disagreement, exactly what you've expressed, Troy, is that what it fails to do is establish the common ground. Because when I talk to individuals who are really in depth on these on these topics, I find I actually have more agreement with the Arminian Mm -hmm. who is grounding their argument biblically and then exporting their theology from that, then we often realize there's more common ground, I think, than there is disagreement because at the end of the day, we're agreeing on the gospel and that's what matters. And unfortunately, the, the, you know, the divisiveness, I think, is a sign of lack of maturity. Mm -hmm. I've seen some people who kind of look back on their on their lives and I go, man, like I was more Arminian than I was Christian, or I was more Calvinist than mm. I was Christian. And I certainly don't want to be more of a Molinist than I'm a I'm a Christian. Um and by the way, if you ever hear me say I lean towards this way or that way, that's just my way of saying I'm not settled on this. Right. So mm, j- yeah. just so you know, so in in terms of Molinism, yeah, I lean a little more in that direction, but I see some 
problems there too. Having said all that, I just want to bring up one more quick point. I I just want to, I guess, be mindful of the effect of my upbringing as well, right? Because I grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition and in the Roman Catholic tradition and in the Eastern Orthodox, they do um, take apostasy to be a very real kind of possibility. In fact, if you, according to the Catholic theology, if you commit a mortal sin, some grave sin, then you go Such to confessional. As suicide. Right? right. Like yeah, any of the Ten Commandments stuff, right? Like, yeah. um, so then you commit a mortal sin. That means this is the kind of really grave sin that, you know, by committing that, you're basically saying no to Christ, right? And so you go to confessional and all that kind of stuff. And so that's very much the tradition that I grew up in. So Going back to the terms that uh, Wes introduced us to earlier, the Orthodox and the Catholic Roman Catholic tradition, they are very much synergistic, right? Um, and, and they're not afraid to say so. In fact, they think uh, being monergistic in, in their eyes, this is, that's not scriptural. And, and of course, we can't argue that. But um, the sort of the tradition that, you know, the Reformed tradition, that Wes is very comfortably a part of is very much monergistic. This is this is salvation is in a sense unilateral. Let's jump into things now. I think we, we've gotten into the shallow end slow enough. We've helped people to see that this is pretty complicated, and we're going to start to wade out now into the deep end. And let's do so by throwing the ball back at Wes, and we can kind of help people to see the Calvinist perspective. And then I want to shoot holes in it. And and then <laughs> and then we'll move on to the Arminian, and then I want to shoot holes in that, and and then kind of help people to see how this has led to people like myself and the rest of us having to work through it. And then I'm gonna, and then I think it's important to show how it leads to even bigger questions that that leave us all kind of going, hmm. So if you want to get to the hmm <laughs> question, you got to wait till the end. But Wes, uh, to you, how's it? How would a Calvinist say? Uh, can you lose your salvation? Now, of course, I know the answer to this, but give it give it for us. Yeah, well, I think it was good that Steve kind of brought up the fact that um, there is a, a, an interplay with this with Roman Catholicism because the first debate of the Protestant Reformation was on this issue. It was a written debate between Martin Luther and a guy named Desiderius Erasmus on the freedom of the will versus the bondage of the will. Is your will free or is it bonded to sin and you need a supernatural act in order to make it free and actually luther said later on that this was the hinge upon which the door of the reformation swung so for him this was one of the major issues that sat behind the justification question which launched the protestant reformation in order so the question for me by the way if i could just interrupt real quick uh my calvinist friends would would put it in these terms you are dead in your trespasses you're dead in your sins and and in that death there is you a dead person can't do anything sort of idea so you, so the calvinist has this idea there's nothing you can do to mm-hmm. deal with your sin that that god needs to do that work that 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 you as a dead person if you will you don't have the faith that faith needs to be given to you, you need to be brought alive would it, would you see it in the in those uh, in those terms wes yeah dead people are really bad at doing cpr on themselves is, yeah. So that's so that's how they say, yeah, yeah. And in terms of the question we're addressing today, there's a an old Reformed idiom that if 
you have it, that is, if you have genuine faith and are in a state of saving grace, you will never lose it. And if you lose it, you never had it. So the question then is, is, is salvation the work of God's freedom or is it a cooperative effect subject to failure? So if it is solely God's work to his own glory, then obviously God will not fail to accomplish all his holy will. So relevant passages for that would be things like Psalm 135.6, Daniel 4.34-35, Ephesians 1.10-11, and uh, I think the listener can go and look those up if they're interested. But ultimately, I would look at places like 1 John 5.11 that says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And that's in, you know, that's a done deal that for the life of the believer, God has given us eternal life. And even, you know, the, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew starts off with this proclamation of the, the angel coming to Mary and saying, she will bear a son and you shall name his, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins, not try to save them from their sins, not attempt to save them from their sins, but it's positioned in the affirmative that he will save his people from their sins. And so that's what leads into, and you know, the typical, you know, reform passages are places like Romans 8 and 9, where you have this kind of flow that Paul articulates, which is sometimes called the golden chain of redemption. It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And essentially what I would argue is that the calling of the believer is the same as the justification and sanctification in the life that Christ has died once for all. He will save. And so that calling is effectual. He, he won't fail in that work of saving his people. So just to clarify then, what Wes, I think one, one of the key points that the Calvinist is making on the assurance of salvation is that if salvation is primarily the work of God, then the the weight of that salvation is being bared by God. So it's it's God that is, as Hebrews says, that is making the guarantee of that salvation. He's not going to fail to bring that mm-hmm. to completion. So so on Calvinism, you have the assurance of God's work in in having chosen and having redeemed. Versus if you head over towards the Arminian view that puts the weight on the person mm-hmm. at various degrees, I'm going to go more of an extreme just to just to juxtapose these, where the person's choosing God, well, now there's this question about, you know, this guarantee, like, like well, if you choose, then you can unchoose. But versus God has, has chosen, he's not going to change his mind, and he's going to bring this to completion, so you have assurance of salvation. Is that, is that, is that right, Wes? Is that how you see it? Yeah, and ultimately, I think, you know, John Owen posits this in a fundamentally Trinitarian way when he says that the Father's election of a specific people and Christ's death on their behalf and the Spirit's sealing of those same specific people all lead to the conclusion of eternal security. So it's a, it's essentially and fundamentally a Trinitarian work of the Godhead that works together, and the Godhead cannot f- fail in the task of the cross. And and I think all of this um, kind of, it, it comes together in a package nicely, I think. When you talk about Calvinism, often you use the um, 
acronym TULIP, right? It's the so-called five-point Calvinism. And so you start with total depravity, meaning a human being is not that you're you're like as depraved as you can be, but by total we mean that every aspect of you, right? The scope of it is total, right? You're you're depraved. Dead. Your mind, your soul, everything is uh, affected by sin, corrupted by sin. And then there's you is um, unconditional election, uh, meaning that this is like we were saying earlier. This is a, a unilateral work of God. Because you are dead in your trespasses, and he calls, like he has elected you from the foundation of the world. I mean, people use the word limited atonement, although, as I understand, Wes, you uh, like the term particular atonement, that atonement. Particular redemption, yeah. Particular redemption, that Jesus' atonement on the cross is for the elect, right? Not not Mm -hmm. for everyone. Because if it's for everyone, then everyone, it, leads to universalism, that everyone is saved. Let me just clarify that for our listeners that aren't familiar with this line of reasoning. It's argued then that when Jesus dies on the cross, that his blood is only for those people God chose and is not Mm -hmm. for everyone. And then the I is irresistible grace, right? That that this is, again, this is the unilateral work of God. Um, and, And then, so then that leads to P, Perseverance of saints, or as you prefer, the preservation of the saints that God preserves through his irresistible grace, those whom he has elected. And so there is a kind of a chain of reasoning that goes from the total depravity all the way through to the preservation of the saints. And so then uh, to the question, can you lose your salvation? I think really from the Calvinist perspective, the Reformed perspective, the answer would be no. That's right. Is yeah. that would you agree to that? Yeah, and and I think just briefly, um, the thing that really changed my mind was Jesus himself, in particularly his discourses in John. I think when I was really wrestling with this question and going back and forth, the Gospel of John and the Book of Hebrews in particular, but the Gospel of John and and the discourses that Jesus articulates, particularly in John six with the Bread of Life discourse and John eight with the Good Shepherd. Uh, teaching solidified it for me because in John 6, we have the context of Jesus's bread of life discourse and the subject matter is salvation. Like that's the context of what he's talking about. And he personally and specifically outlines himself as the bread of life. And then in, in verses 37 and 39, I think uh, was the clincher for me when I was reading this, because he says, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone that who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. And so if this is an act of God's work to bring about the salvation of his people to his glory, he won't fail in accomplishing that. And Jesus says that the Father gives to him those particular people. So the action of the Father's giving results in those who are given coming to Jesus and if you are coming to Jesus in true and living faith, it's because the Father has given you to the Son. So I would just say notice 
Jesus there says that I will never cast them away. Why? Well, I think that what the text says is that he has come down from heaven to do the Father's will, and I think it's impossible for the Son to fail to do the Father's will. So he says in verse 39 that he's, he's going to lose none of them, none of those that are given to him by the Father. And then he concludes the thought by saying he will raise them up on the last day. So I just say that what I think that means within the context of the biblical text is that for Jesus to be the Savior that the Father intends him to be, he must lose none of those that are given to him. And if Jesus loses even one, then he's failed to accomplish the Father's will. Okay. I hope that all the Calvinists that are listening feel that we have represented your position as fairly as possible. I think that Wes has made a, a great case here, and now it's time to poke holes in it. Actually, can, before we move on, can we just take just a couple minutes to appreciate the strength of this? I think one thing that I find really appealing about Calvinism is that it takes the load off of me. It is God's work, yeah, right? I agree. And so I, I can yeah. rest because there's nothing for me then to worry about. And I think that can be one of the sort of the weaknesses of the more kind of the Armenian side of the position is that, well, can, can I lose it? Uh, I mean, if apostasy is possible, then what keeps me from actually not apostatizing, right? And so I, that's one thing I really love about Calvinism is that it takes the onus off of me, and it is in the hands of somebody who is infinitely more capable than I am. And mm -hmm. that, the comfort that comes from that, I think is really immense. Steve, I can I completely uh, agree. I completely agree. Okay, but now for the flaws and the holes in the line of reasoning, because when you look at this argument, you think to yourself, "This is a Loctite argument. This is a this is a great argument." But the problem is uh, Calvinism. And again, listen, I have lots of Calvinist friends, and and I love all you Calvinists. But it's kind of like a sweater, and you can start to pull at this one thread, and if you just keep pulling at this one thread, before you know it. You're naked. There's no there, there's no sweater so unless you're wearing a shirt. Unless you're wearing a shirt underneath, it's a large uh, sweater. Just in uh, the in the thread in the or what we would call the crux, the 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 main issue, the weakness of the argument comes down not to the whole salvation issue and not to God's ability to save the elect. That's all absolutely established, and I think theologically and philosophically that is locked tight. The the chink in the armor is who's the elect. This is this for the Calvinists is, is the challenge. And so the Calvinists get into what I call theological semantics, such that if I were to ask Wes, what would you say? And I know the answer, of course, but playing this out. <laughs> if I were to say, you know, Wes, you've got a friend that's a Calvinist, and you go to church together, loves the Lord, but then this guy cheats on his wife, leaves his family, and says, I want nothing to do with, with the Lord, no longer involved in Christianity, he claims to be an atheist and the like. What would be your answer, Wes? How is this possible? Because 
if God has elected. Right. Yeah. Well, that is obviously a sign that that individual did not have saving faith. So you would say, to be specific, that person was not elect. Yeah. Well, I would say two things. I think it's an entirely possible. And the reform position doesn't deny apostates. They're obviously apostates. I mean, I've known family, friends who have left the faith. Uh, the question becomes, you know, is it possible to have both an intellectual ascent and even an, a very powerful emotional experience that was not actually true saving faith? And, and I think that, that the answer to that is yes, that I have known people who have professed the name of Christ who have left the faith, and that's what I would say an apostate is. It's someone who has confessed the name of Christ, but ultimately did not have saving faith. Otherwise, they would have had that being born again. And I don't think you can unborn again yourself. That's not a real phrase. But even if you look at John 15 with the, the vine and the branches, and another place, you know, Matthew 13, the parable of the soils, in both of those parables, the branches are cut off not because they didn't bear fruit. And in the parable of the soils and the soils that were rejected did not bear fruit. So in both instances, the issue was the bringing forth of fruit. And Jesus's teaching was that if you abide in him, you will bring forth fruit. So it's not that my abiding in him brings forth the fruit. He brings forth the fruit in me. But the point is that these branches that are cut off or the soil that brings, you know, forth temporary growth were not the soils in which true salvation were taking place. But I think that you would agree, Wes, uh, that you can have uh, an individual like Joshua Harris, who mm -hmm. clearly was bearing fruit for many, many years, but as of the last couple of years has apostatized, has denounced right, yeah. his faith and is no longer a Christian. And so this gets into a tricky question then for the Calvinist. How do I know that I'm elect? Now, Wes is making the argument that there's going to be fruit, but yet you, we mm. can point to people that appeared to have fruit, and yet they ultimately left the faith. So it leaves you in this predicament of well, not I would whether or not they appear. I can, Right. They appear so, to have fruit. Yeah. So it leaves you in this predicament, not of whether or not God can complete the salvation, but whether or not you ever had the salvation to begin with. It just it, it leads me to just this this challenge that I have, because like, as I was just trying to trying to read, I, I came across Second Peter two, verse 20 to 22. And it says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in and them overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment. And the emphasis I want to put on is the fact that he, he says they've escaped it. So there has been some form of salvation there. There's a saving grace, but it kind of shows that you can lose it, and it's almost worse to lose it after after you've experienced it, than never really having it at all, right? The, 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 it goes on to say the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to the wallow, to wallow in the mire. So for me, that, that I think that this is where I, I wrestle sometimes with um, going Calvinist is because it feels like 
I, I kind of what Steve was saying, there is this removal of like, I can rest in knowing God's got it all covered. But I think where people get into trouble is they take their hands off and like, well, even if I make a mistake, even if I don't do anything, God's got me covered. And then I find that being a very, very dangerous thing to say, because you got people who don't have proper understanding, who are not walking in faith, who are not seeking to turn away from their sin nature because, well, oh, God's got a number. Okay, well, either I'm in or I'm not. So I don't need to worry about it. And that's why I don't like the phrase once saved, always saved, because I think it can give a false sense of entitlement. Um, And ultimately, you're not saved by your good works, but you're saved for your good works. And that is the fruit and sign of salvation. And I think ultimately, exactly what you just read, Troy, uh, where I would outline um, and where I think Peter's outlining an apostate is someone who is sitting and listening and being taught under the word of God. And I think this is both Peter's conclusion there and actually the the author of Hebrews' conclusion in Hebrews chapter 6 is that the worst place to go to hell from is from the pew. In that, someone who's sitting under the teaching of you know uh, the biblical mandate, who is hearing the gospel— and who is seeing the spirit work in people's lives and yet then chooses to reject that is someone who is turning away and is showing, you know, like John says in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of Mm -hmm. us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And I think what I would say is ultimately you have... Um, what Peter's talking about there being someone who is disdaining the word of God. And, you know, at least the pagan, at least the atheist can appear before God and say, hey, I didn't know, you know, he never revealed it to me. I mean, they'd be wrong. But the person who's been sitting under the teaching of God is under more responsibility than that person. But I don't think this is speaking just about the sitting under the teaching, because it says that they have escaped it. Yeah. They've completely left. And so I think I, I, I can understand someone who's just sitting under the teaching and they're hearing all these things. Like I think of a person who's sitting in the pews, I'm just going to go, I'm hearing the word of God, and then I'm not choosing it. But this, right. I'm, I'm sitting on this word escaped because that to me, I hear, the, I hear saved. You've been saved, not just sitting under the teaching. And so I would ultimately say that that salvation is not the context there, but it is someone who is within the fellowship. So this is what Augustine would call um, the visible church versus the invisible church. The invisible church are people who are genuinely, they've been born again, they're regenerate, they're moved by the spirit. But, you know, in Luther's day, everybody was a Christian. You were arguably born into a Christian. And so when Luther talks about people who have left Christianity, he means people who didn't have that sealing of the Holy Spirit, whom Christ died for effectively. Yeah, the one a way of putting that that I've seen is, are you a Christian by profession or are you mm. a Christian by possession? Right. So, uh, so for example, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, in that day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord. Have we not done all these wonderful things prophesied? And Jesus says, I never knew you. (laughs) I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoers. And so clearly we're going to see on Judgment Day some people that we would have thought were Christians or, you know, um, they clearly thought themselves that they were Christians 
but they were Christians by profession only, but not by possession of the the regenerated heart um, and and the saving faith that that comes from it. Now, um, having said that, to kind of bring it back to the question that Andy was talking about, um, so you were saying, say somebody uh, who seemed to have genuine faith um, and you know seemed to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. They ultimately turn out to be people, you know, who weren't really um, part of the elect. So I think that's where uh, I have a little bit of issues, and I'd be curious to mm-hmm. hear how you resolve this. West is the key word is seem, right? They seemed to have genuine faith. They seemed to be bearing fruit, and and how do we know that that person? actually has genuine faith. So it's not a question, for me, it's not a question of the actual state of that person, but it's one of knowledge or epistemology, like how do we know? And so if, so do we know that that person has genuine saving faith by seeing the fruit that the person bears? If that's the case, is this good enough for us to know that that person actually has it? Because that person might fall away. And then after the fact, we can justify it and say that person was never part of the the elect. So, like, how have you wrestled with that? Before, before you answer that, though, Wes, I want to I want to add to it because this is that sweater thread that we're just we're pulling, and you just keep pulling. And this is where what what Steve's getting at that I that I was starting is it gets into what I would call theological semantics, where where we start to have some word games about whether or not they were elect or not. And, you know, maybe I should, maybe I should let you answer this first, Wes, but, but I do know just because of time constraints that we're going to go back and forth on this. And as I just keep pulling at the sweater, the thing that we're going to go back and forth on getting into this, just semantics is this idea that, okay, somebody falls away. Okay. They weren't elect. Right. But they're still in the faith. Oh, they must be elect. And it leads to this problem in Calvinism that we don't know who has the saving faith. We don't know who the elect are and who the elect aren't. And that's one of the reasons why uh, I feel like people who get too bent up in Calvinist and Arminian theology just need to, to relax, because at the end of the day, you don't know. At the end of the day, you don't know. So the gospel has to be preached the same, no matter yeah. which theological position you hold. Because you don't know. Yeah, and and I would fully agree with that. At the end of the day, we are commanded to preach the gospel. And so that's what we do. You know, I'd love if everybody could have a blinking sign on top of their head that said elect or non-elect. But (laughs) ultimately, um, they don't. And so I am commanded to preach the gospel despite myself. Now, I think at the end, this all for me personally does come down to the fact that I think Christ's sacrifice was effectual. So I don't think that Christ made people savable. I think Christ saves. And um, I referred to John chapter six before, but the next major discourse that, that changed my mind on this was John chapter 10, where in verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my father's hand. My father who gives them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And this is why I said at the beginning that I think that the idea of 
perseverance of the saints is at its base a Trinitarian biblical argument because the father sends the son on behalf of his sheep. The son gives eternal life at which no one will be able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And it's the spirit who empowers the life of the sheep to persevere to the end, not on the basis of the sheep's will and power, but on the basis of the triune's God's will and power. And if there's something I can do to undo Jesus's giving me eternal life, then all his words, I would argue in both John 6 and John, uh, sorry, that was John 8, not John 10. Um, I would argue they become invalidated. So again, we are in full agreement with you, Wes, that God can save and that nobody can stop him from bringing somebody um, home, if you will, and fulfilling right. that, that, that salvation. Uh, and the, that that's sufficient and effective. Yeah, 100%, 100% in agreement there. The, the, the challenge keeps sneaking in, though, with whether or not that person was, was chosen by God to have that salvation that he will bring to completion. So the 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 move that the that I see you making that the Calvinists make West is saying then, well, if you want to know, okay, then if you are one of those chosen, it's in the persevering of your faith. So if you are persevering in the faith, then clearly you are elect and the Holy Spirit is at work in you. I would say that's a result. Because I think, you know, we have examples of backsliding in, in the Bible itself. That's, that's a, a, a real issue. We have Peter and Judas. So look at Peter and Judas who both betray Jesus. So one was a believer and the other wasn't. So both of their actions were repugnant in the extreme. They were both a total betrayal of Christ. Both were predicted by Christ and when he told Judas what he was about to do, he ended those commands by saying, Judas, what, you have, what you're going to do, do quickly, right? That's John 13, 27. And he dismissed Judas. But when he made the same type of prediction about the behavior of Peter, he says, Satan would have you and sift you like wheat. So he says, you know, do you remember? But Simon, I have prayed for you so that when you return, not if you return, not if, but when, um, you're, you're going to strengthen the brothers. So I, I think that backsliding is a possibility. I just think that the perseverance is the result. It's not, you know, you, it's not the sign of salvation because ultimately an individual who's saved, that's between them and God. But I Now, now I think, here gets into that problem though again, right? Because those who are saved is between them and God. Well, the, the problem is for for some people, right, that leads to this unassurance because now they're not sure whether or not the, they are the elect or not. Now, when we look at somebody's life, okay, they're following the Lord, they must be elect. They fall away, oh, I guess they're not elect. No, they come back to church, oh, I guess they were elect. But then they fell away a couple of years later, I guess they weren't. And, and then they right. come back, but oh, but I guess they were. See, this, yeah. is the, this is the theological semantics where it kind of goes back and forth and you could say, well, how do I know? How do I know that they're not gonna fall away again? Well, I don't know. They very well could. And this is where I think it leads to some people who will say about themselves, man, I sure hope I stay in the faith. I don't know what's going to happen next year. What if I fall away? Maybe I can't be assured that I actually am saved because I don't know whether or not I'm truly elect. Right. And I would I, say, I think... stop worrying about that. <laughs> I would say, you know, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 26, God promises that he will give us a new heart and a new spirit that he's going to put in us, and he'll remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Go do the work that you're called to do, to live in Christ. Stop worrying about whether you're saved or not. At, at the very least, though, 
what we're talking about is an epistemological question, like how do we know? But even if we didn't know, I don't think that necessarily pulls the whole rug out from under the feet of Calvinists, to be fair. Um, not that you're being unfair, Andy, or am I saying that? No, I hope not. But <laughs> but but I think that the even if we didn't know, I think at least the the tulip side of things. So I think if I think this tulip still could stand, even if we don't have assurance of salvation in the sense of that kind of psychological certainty. That psychological certainty might not be there, but I think the 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 understanding of the salvation, I think could still stand. That's where I would kind of come down. Again, my issue too is is one of his epistemology among some other challenges mm. that that I have for Calvinism. But I think, um, yeah, that that's where I'm sitting. Yeah, and and I totally get that. And I'm 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 a very um, I'm very receptive to that. Uh, I'll I'll just say this, and then we'll move on to the the next portion of the show. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> That in Ephesians 1, 4 to 5, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And I would just encourage the person who's struggling with that question, you know, am I the elect? Am I not the elect? I'm not in the elect. I would say, you know, stop, stop it. Stop worrying about it. You, you know, do the work of Christ and see that fruit work in your life. And I think ultimately that will be far more prosperous than, you know, the anxiety of worrying when um, Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So go and live the life that Christ has died on your behalf for. I think this is a good place for us uh, to transition now into the second part where we're going to stop the focus being on West and Calvinism. We're going to start to shift it. Hey, listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. I know, kind of a cliffhanger. But remember, this is part one of Can You Lose Your Salvation? So make sure you come back next week as we get into part two. But in the meantime, make sure to like and subscribe and follow us on social media. Interact with us. If you had any questions about today's episode, you can send us an email at info at apologeticscanada.com. But you know the drill. Until next time, love God, love people. Bye for now.